Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to Bunker Gold, where we take a look over our extensive back catalogue and re-release a hit. This week, we've chosen an episode from November 2022, where Roz Taylor spoke to David Green, Senior Research Fellow in the Aerosol Science Team at Imperial College London, to ask the question, how filthy is Britain's air? and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Every morning when I take my son to school, I have to walk up the A1 and every morning I worry about what the rumbling lorries and the angry vans are doing to his lungs and his brain. So I wanted to find out how bad is the UK's air pollution and are we doing anything meaningful about it? Joining me to answer those questions is David Green, a senior research fellow in the aerosol science team at Imperial College London. Welcome to The Bunker, David. Hi, Ross. It's lovely to be here. Let's talk about the chemistry, if you like, first of all. What are the biggest pollutants in the UK's air at the moment? Okay, so if you breathe in air, you breathe in a mixture of gases and aerosols or particles. If we deal with the gases first, the things we're most worried about are oxidant gases, which would react with your airways, so nitrogen dioxide and ozone principally. We used to be worried about things like carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide, but we've reduced the emissions of those. And which of those are most worrisome? Well, both nitrogen dioxide and ozone uh, have significant health effects. So they're both of concern. When we talk about significant health effects, we know there's a clear link with asthma, especially in young people. What do we know about the long-term effects on people of these gases? They've been shown to both lead to asthma as a disease and also to accentuates the symptoms of, of asthma. So they're concerned both for creating the disease in the first place and then exacerbating it. There have also been suggestions that it can inhibit, they can inhibit the brain development of children. How does that happen? Do we know the mechanism involved? Well, most of that is related to the particles in the atmosphere. So I talked about gases and being worried about these oxidant gases. We're also worried about particles which are also breathed in. Now, these are very, very small. We're concerned about anything less than, well, what we call PM10, so particles less than 10 microns in diameter. Now, if you bear in mind a human hair, if you cut it across its length, it would be around 70 or 80 microns in diameter. So we're talking about something that's about a, a tenth of the width of a human hair. And that's the largest we're concerned with. And these particles go down to very, very small sizes. Anything less than about two and a half microns can penetrate deep into the lung and smaller than that can get across into your blood. And that's where it transfers to the brain or other organs. And that's what causes some of the development problems. Recently, they've they found particles in unborn babies. You've helped monitor 
sites in London for air pollution. Which are the worst areas in the capital? When you think about air pollution, it's not really rocket science about where the pollution is worst. It tends to be closest to the sources, so close to roads. And if you've got a lot of roads altogether, then it's going to be worse there. Or other sources like the airport, where you've got both the source from the aircraft themselves, but also from all the associated traffic. So if you look at a map of London, you'll see a high density of pollution in the middle of London, where you've got lots of roads close together, and you'll see another high density spot around Heathrow. Are there enough measuring sites, in your opinion, for us to get a good idea of what's going on? <laughs> I'm, I'm a measurement scientist, so the more, the more measurements, the better for me. London is very, very lucky, and I'm talking about a London perspective here. We've had a very high quality monitoring network with around 100 stations across London for a couple of decades now. We're one of the most advanced countries in Europe and probably the world to do this. Technology's moved on. And whereas these monitoring sites used to be big and in big cabins, and we still have those, and they're very important because they provide reference measurements for us, we've got a lot of small sensors now that can just be mounted on a lamppost. Although their quality isn't as good, although we're improving on that, it gets us a much better geographical distribution. So I think more and more measurements is great, but we're getting there slowly. So one of the things that's been brought in recently to try to improve the quality of air is the ultra-low emissions zone, which stretches out to the north circular and the south circular, the big arterial roads, but not motorways that, that go around London. Has the ULES, as it's known, has it made a difference? Yes, it has. Now, the ultra-low emission zone and the low emission zone before it accelerated the uptake of cleaner technology in vehicles. There's been a lot of work to accelerate that uptake in different fleets, so into the taxi fleet and the bus fleet. So undoubtedly, reducing the emissions from vehicles reduces the concentration of pollutants in the air in, in London. More and more, as you reduce those emissions closer to road, it's also emissions from other sources that become more important. So basically, it's made it much more expensive to use diesel cars in that area. It's made it much more expensive to, yes, to use diesel cars of a low standard in that area. Of course, not all the pollution is actually from the tailpipe, is it? A lot of it comes from the tyres. How much of it proportionately comes from those different sources? Well, as we've reduced emissions from the tailpipe, uh, what we would call non-exhaust emissions, so that's emissions from tyre wear, from brake wear, and from the wear of the road surface or the resuspension of dust from the road surface as the car moves over it, proportionally that's increased. Currently, around 60% of PM2.5, so those are those small particles that penetrate into their lung, comes from, uh, so direct emissions from cars, about 60% comes from those non-exhaust sources. Is there much we can do about that? Yes. Well, there's some things we can do about it. Electric vehicles use regenerative braking technology. Now, what that does is rather, that slows the vehicle down by putting energy back into the battery. When you put your foot on the brake, rather than it leading to the brake calipers, pinching the brake pads against your disc and creating those wear products, it puts energy back into the battery. And you, when you put your foot on the brake, it's only at the very low speeds or when you're trying to brake very, very heavily at higher speeds that the actual brake calipers and brake pads are used. So that reduces the brake wear probably by about 80%. So there's some things we can do there. That leaves us with tyre wear and resuspension. That's more difficult. They're trying to generate tyres that 
reduce the wear. But also on the other side of this, vehicles are getting heavier. So tyre wear is predicted to increase and so is resuspension just because vehicles are getting heavier. So EVs are good at reducing brake wear and the pollution from that. But of course, they are pretty expensive compared to conventional vehicles. Is there anything more that the government can be doing to make them more attractive? Because there was a subsidy which has been withdrawn, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, anything anything the government can do to reduce the emissions will have a benefit on the public health and, of course, benefit the public purse. Because in the end, we pay for it in childhood development. We pay for it in, in health effects as well at the end of the day. So, yes, I think there are. There's scrappage schemes that they can bring in. They can increase low emission zones. But of course, ultimately, we need to get people out of their cars and using more active methods of transport to get around the cities. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. You've done some research on pollution in subway systems. How does that compare to the pollution above ground? Subway systems are a unique environment and they have unique challenges. They are, of course, very important for moving people around the city. You couldn't move that many people around using private cars. So we undoubtedly need them. But what you have is a is a system that produces lots of wear products, similar to brake wear. We produce brake wear from uh, from underground trains as well. And of course, the wearing of the, the wheels on the rails. But unlike above ground, it doesn't dilute and dissipate in the wind it tends to stay there so what happens is as the next train comes past it gets recirculated and it gets blown back up and it never it never really goes anywhere so concentrations if there's no no adequate ventilation can get very very high in the underground many times higher than we see even at the most heavily trafficked roadsides that's interesting because I think most people don't think of the, the tube as somewhere which is full of pollution. And yet we know, I mean, you know, from from uh, if you blow your nose after coming out of the tube or you could, even when you look down the platform, you can see a grey haze in the air. Which, which lines are worst? Well, the lines where there is less ventilation. So if you think about the, the circle line or the district line that goes around the outside of central London, that comes up and and down above ground. So there are areas where it's uncovered and that allows fresh air into the system. Whereas if you think about the Victoria line, which is underground all of the way, that has no fresh air coming into it. So it's lines like the Victoria line, which are worse because they have no fresh air ventilation. Does age play a part as well? I mean, would the Northern line be worse than the Elizabeth line, for example? Age plays a part in two ways. Some of the earlier networks or lines were quite deep. So the, the northern line is quite deep and it goes a long way underground. Places like Hampstead, it's it's about 80 feet underground. The other way age plays a part is the age of the rolling stock that's on the line as well. So some of the lines like the Piccadilly or the Bakerloo line, the trains are from 1972. So they don't have 
as good regenerative braking as other trains. So they are emitting more, which of course is getting resuspended and remains in the system. People don't often think of wood-fired burners as being particularly polluting, or at least not in the same way as they think of a exhaust as being polluting and yet they are playing a big role in some in in some areas in pollution is that something you're particularly concerned about yes one of the problems with wood fire burners is well firstly they're seen as sustainable and so people see them as green in the same way they used to see diesel vehicles as as green but that's not necessarily the case you're emitting pollution that's pretty much unabated so it doesn't go through any cleaning mechanisms before it's released it's released directly into your environment locally outside your house but also into your house as well wood burners are quite leaky indoors so you smell the wood burning in the house and that's not very good for you as a person who's doing it Um, it also pollutes you and all of your neighbors and it tends to be in conditions which are cold and when it's cold Pollution stays close to the ground and doesn't disperse. And that leads to the buildup of local air pollution wherever you are wood burning. So it's, it's bad on many levels. I have heard a couple of my friends telling me that their wood-fired burners are low emission and are not really damaging at all. Are they right? I think some wood burners are better than others. There is certainly a scheme run by DEFRA which certifies wood burners as being good or bad. So if you're going to choose one, then choose the better wood burner. It also depends what you put in it. So always put dry seasoned wood in it and operate it according to the instructions. And that would be the best way to reduce any of the impact you're having. So we've talked a lot about London, but pollution is bad elsewhere in the UK as well. Which cities suffer most? That's a very good question. I'm quite London focused because most of my work has been done in London, but I I have got out and done work in other cities. I quite a lot of work in South Wales, uh, where there's lots of industrial sources. So in places like Talbot in South Wales, there's a large uh, steel refinery there, which uh, which puts out a lot of a different type of pollution that comes from the steel works and the associated works there. So Talbot is one of the worst places traditionally in in the UK and also further up in the Welsh valleys where there is there's still quite a lot of industrial work releasing metals into the environment you can have specific problems with the release of certain metals which are known to have poor health effects generally when you consider cities in the UK London is very good because it has although it's very big and has lots of traffic and a great deal of traffic density it's got the low emission zone and the ultra low emission zone which reduce the impact of vehicles in london when you go to places like manchester to a lesser extent birmingham because they've just bought in a clean air zone their pollution can be less abated because it's not an adv- not as advanced in its on its clean air strategy what can people do to minimize their exposure to pollution you need to get away from the sources so if we talked about inside the home as well so don't use a wood burner open your doors or windows as much as you can when you're cooking if you're traveling outside some of the highest concentrations you find are actually inside your car so if you're sitting inside your car you're in the middle of the road and you're directly behind the exhaust pipe of another car so if you're in those conditions have your recirculating air con- or your recirculating airflow on and keep your window closed if you're walking or cycling try and take back routes 
that's generally the, the advice. Does wearing masks help? Because clearly in the last two, three years, we've all become accustomed to wearing masks. Would it help in terms of air pollution? Yes, it would. Masks in the same way that they reduce the inhalable fraction of biological material that could cause you to catch COVID, it will, of course, reduce your your inhalable fraction of particles, which could cause health damage as well. So yes, it would help, but it's much better to reduce the pollution in the atmosphere than it is to try to stop breathing it in by wearing a mask. It's for us, we are we, we shouldn't be the person producing the pollution. We should be it should be down to the polluter to reduce what's coming into the atmosphere rather than for us to reduce what's coming into our lungs. In Paris, on days which are predicted to be particularly bad, the city authorities have the powers, don't they, to limit the number of vehicles coming into the centre of Paris. And I think they do it by number plate and one odd numbered one day, even numbered the next. Is that something that would help in London? I think London's strategy is slightly different. London is trying to reduce the emissions from all vehicles all of the time. When you think about what causes air pollution episodes, which is what goes on what Paris are particularly concerned about, and rightly so, a lot of that pollution is already in the atmosphere from, and it has been released many days before, and is either not dispersing or is building up due to reactions in the atmosphere. So what you're doing by reducing the number of cars is just reducing that local top-up, if you like, of local pollution, which has a good effect. But I think, again, much better to reduce the pollution all of the time from everywhere than just trying to do those things on particular days. I have an app which sends out air quality warnings, but I get the impression that I must be about the 0.1% of people who do because they never seem to make the news or have much traction. Should more of us sign up to these? Yes. Now, your app gives you results or warnings when air pollution's high, does it? Yes, that's right. So it sends, it makes a pinging noise and it says that tomorrow is going to be a high levels of whichever chemical ozone. Or... Does it happen very often? No, I would say it happens about five or six times a year. See, that's one of the problems in, in terms of communicating this health issue to the wider public is that it doesn't happen very often. Therefore, it's very difficult to, to communicate this all of the time because it only happens kind of four or five times a year. So often, if your app isn't doing anything, you'll probably switch it off because it's using up phone battery, etc. It would be great if more people did download the apps and listen to the notifications when they came through, especially those people who have a pre-existing lung disease, if they've got asthma or COPD. It can really help them identify when they need to take their medication with them. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'd love it if you supported us on Patreon. You can contribute as little as three quid a month or bung us a fiver and you'll get a bunker mug. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees with assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.